Welcome to Barry and Lambert's Solicitors podcast series, Planning for Your Future. In this series, we explain in detail how life planning can help you navigate your way through the ups and downs, and how getting your affairs in place now can assist your loved one's future responsibilities. Barry and Lambert Solicitors, we're right by you, through the good times, challenging times, and sad times. Hello, I'm Paul Harvey, and a warm welcome to this podcast with Paul Reader, Managing Partner at Berry and Lambert's. And this is one of a series of podcasts with Berry and Lambert's. A warm welcome to you, Paul. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good, thanks. Great to have you with us today. So, Paul, apart from being the Managing Director of Berry and Lambert's, please describe your role within the firm. I also head up the commercial and dispute resolution team here at Berries. So I get involved in working with companies and advising them, but also in disputes. And I suppose what's relevant for today is um, getting involved where there's disputes over inheritance. So today we're going to be talking about disputes over wills and Inheritance Act claims and the importance of the Inheritance Act of 1975. So, Paul, can we start off by giving a brief overview of what the Act is and and why it is important? Yeah, the Act is a good tool for family members and certain other dependents who, when a deceased passes away, has not made adequate provision for them in a will, or they haven't made a will, so therefore there's not adequate provision for them in the estate. Right. So while it is a good tool, it's no substitute to ensuring that you have a will in place and that you keep this up to date. And why do the courts get involved in how someone chooses to leave their estate? Well, usually the courts try not to get involved in people's estates. The basic principle of English law is that by and large, you're entitled to leave your estate how you wish. And as I say, the courts will not intervene. And generally, the courts will just look and make sure that the formalities of will have been correctly followed so that the will's been witnessed. And they will only get involved in setting aside a will if there's issues of the testator lacking capacity when they make the will, if they've been placed under undue influence when they have made the will, or they've not had the requisite knowledge and approval um, at the time of making the will. That last one effectively means that they didn't really know what they were signing at the time. However, if it's established that the will has been properly executed, and these features are not in place, then the courts do not really want to get involved in how a testator has decided to distribute the estate. What the Inheritance Provision for Family and Dependents Act 1975 does, though, is provide scope for the court to intervene where the court finds that the deceased has failed to make reasonable provision for certain classes of beneficiaries. And how in practice do you, as a lawyer, become involved in such cases? There's usually two sets of circumstances where people come and speak to us about these issues. The first is where someone has passed away and they either have not left a will or they have failed to update a will. And that leaves beneficiaries who depend upon the deceased in a precarious financial state. The second set of circumstances is where a testator has left a will but has left unequal shares or have excluded a family member and that family member is disgruntled. Now, it's my view that the first set of people that I've just mentioned, so the people where they were dependent upon the deceased and are in a precarious state, that's where the Inheritance Act comes in and can be of an assistance. It's a good tool for assisting such people 
but it's not a perfect tool. The problem that we're seeing recently over the past few years is that more and more people are using it where they are just unhappy with what the deceased has decided to do under their will. Why has that been so significant over the last few years, for example? Why it's been significant, I think, is that we've seen a rise in the number of claims companies coming up who are encouraging people who may be unhappy with how a testator, a deceased, has treated them under the will, and they are using it as a tool to bring claims against the estate. My view is that the Act was really to assist people who were actually dependent upon the deceased, and usually through the deceased's inactivity, by not preparing a will or updating a will, have been left in a financial precarious state. So moving on to the Act then, how does the Act actually work? So under the Act, there are a certain number of people, certain classes of people who are able to bring a claim. These are the spouse or civil partner of the deceased, anyone who during the period of two years ending on the date of death was living in the same household as the deceased as the husband, wife or civil partner of the deceased, a child of the deceased, any person treated by the deceased as a child of a marriage or civil partnership, so stepchildren for instance, or any person who immediately before death was being maintained either wholly or partly by the deceased. It only applies where the deceased was domiciled in the UK. And once one of these people have established that they fall within these categories, then the court will look to see whether the will or the intestacy rules provides reasonable financial provision for them. And when you say reasonable financial provision, what is reasonable provision? My personal view on this is that the courts have left this question quite wide open for interpretation. Hmm. There's a lot of case law around this, and whilst there's you know, general guidelines and principles set by the court, I think judges have quite a wide discretion on this that they can decide on a case-by-case basis. The Act itself provides some guidance, and there's a distinction between spouses and civil partners of the deceased, where the test is that the will should have left financial provision as would be reasonable in all the circumstances of the case for that person to receive, whether or not that provision is required for their maintenance. For all other applicants, the test is whether the will has made provision which would be reasonable for the maintenance of that claimant. So the distinction there, and we'll see this a little later on, is that for the spouse and civil partners, when we're arguing that there should be more provision under the estate, we're not just looking at what they need for their maintenance. It can go beyond that. And if the court decides that reasonable provision has not been made, how does the court decide what reasonable provision should look like? The court will look into, um, there's a number of criteria set out in the Act, and basically it's the financial resources and needs of any claimant. So anybody making a claim under the Act, they will look at their financial resources and needs. It will then consider the financial resources and needs of any other claimant or any other beneficiary under the will or under the intestacy laws. It will look at the deceased's obligations and responsibilities towards any claimant or beneficiary. It looks at the size and nature of the deceased estate. It will look to see whether any claimant or beneficiary has any physical or mental disability which will need providing for. And then it will consider any other matter which it seems relevant, which again is fairly wide. But what it does enable the court to do is that if a deceased leaves 
um, a letter of wishes or an explanation as to why they have made a will in a certain way, that can be brought into play um, when deciding where the reasonable financial provision has been made. For spouses and civil partners, there's further things that they will consider, such as the age of the applicant, how long the marriage has lasted, the contributions to the two partners to the um, family, be it financial or caring for the family. And it will also consider what the uh, surviving partner would have been entitled to had they been going through a divorce process rather than by virtue of the deceased passing away. So you will see within the case law relating to claims by spouses under the Act a reference to the provisions that are made in divorce cases. If the court decides that reasonable provision has not been made, what orders can the court make? The court has quite a wide range of things that it can do if it finds that reasonable provision has not been made. It can look to make uh, periodic payments if the estate has money or is has a trust which is income generating, so they can order that periodic payments are made to a claimant. They can order a payment of a lump sum, so if there's a lot of capital in the estate, the court can say, well, a certain amount of the estate can be paid to a claimant by way of lump sum. They can order that Property within in the estate can be transferred to a claimant. So if there's a spouse who has been living in, in a property that the deceased and the claimant shared, they could order that that property is transferred into the claimant's name. They can look at any prenuptial agreements, so any agreements made by people going into a marriage as to how their estate should be split, and they can look to vary those if they come into play at that point. And also, if there is a will which leaves property on trust for certain beneficiaries, the court can step in and amend those trusts to provide for any claimant. What have you seen in practice, Paul, that highlights some of the points we've been covering? As I mentioned earlier, there's kind of two sets of claimants which we see in practice. The first are the ones who have been left in a precarious financial situation, usually by deceased, not updating or preparing a will at all. There's been one case that we've been dealing with recently, which I think is a good example, where we've acted for a lady who had been living with her partner for 20 years. Her partner was the main breadwinner, but they didn't have a joint account. All their joint income was held in account in his name. He had made a will prior to their relationship commencing, but that had left all his estate to an aunt. And despite conversations throughout the marriage that they must make a will, unfortunately, he never updated that will before he passed away. The net effect of that is that the aunt was entitled to all this person's income, the joint savings, which were held in his um, sole account. Now, we were able to use the act to argue to the beneficiaries and the executors under the will that reasonable financial provision had not been made for um, our client who was the partner of the deceased and been living with him for a substantial period and we were able to um, negotiate the payment of a lump sum to our client so that she has reasonable provision for herself going forward. I think I have to state on that is that reasonable provision probably didn't mirror what the intention was of the of the couple whilst whilst the deceased was still with us but it's better than she would have got under the will and it does secure her future the second set of claimants that we're seeing in practice and again i would argue that this is probably not what the act was set up to do but it's it's the case of disgruntled beneficiaries where a will has been made but they don't feel like they have received what they should be entitled to under the will. 
And as I said earlier, there are a number of claim firms that are approaching people and offering no win, no fee uh, agreements to um, bring claims against estates where people feel badly done by. And we've seen that this is regardless of whether that person was dependent upon the deceased or not. Unfortunately, claim firms are seeing these people and these claims as a bit of an opportunity because they know that executors and beneficiaries of an estate are likely to settle any claim that is made against the estate just because it's more cost effective to do so. It takes less time to um, come to a settlement rather than go to court. But what the claims company knows, as soon as an offer is made by the estate for a payment, they will then be entitled to claim their costs from the estate as well. And so it's become a bit of an industry which um, is disappointing to see. Can you give an example of what the kind of percentage fee is? What are you experiencing from these claim companies? I mean, it differs because the claim companies will usually charge on an hourly basis. But again, that puts pressure on the estate to settle at an early stage because they know the longer it goes on, the higher these fees become and therefore you know more of a cost to the estate and these people aren't necessarily qualified lawyers who are behind these claim companies i couldn't comment on that i think there's probably some and some effectively and what advice and guidance would you give to people i think it's extremely important that people make a will and keep it up to date i think a lot of genuine claimants under the act could be shielded from having to go through what is a stressful period at a difficult time in their lives if a will has been made and it's kept up to date. It just means that provision has been made for those people and then in the event of someone passing away, there shouldn't be a need to take a claim under the Act. Secondly, I think if you are looking to exclude a family member from your will or to make unequal distributions to family members, it's really important that you seek legal advice before making your will. We at Berry and Lamberts and other solicitors can make sure that when you prepare the will, it's done in the correct way, it's documented, so that if someone does look to A, challenge the will itself, we can provide evidence that the person making the will had the requisite capacity, that they were not under any undue influence. And also, we can advise if there is to be an unequal distribution, whether the estate would be exposed to a claim from a disgruntled beneficiary and what steps could be put in place to protect the estate from such a claim, such as preparing a letter explaining why the estate has been um, distributed or or the intention is to distribute as as it is set out in the will. And it may be that we need to go beyond that and it may be looking to see what we can do within the testator's lifetime to ensure that the estate is distributed as as they would like to, which again should further reduce the possibilities of the claim after death. Paul, there's a lot of information here and guidance. If people want to find out more about this particular topic, how can they get hold of you? Well, the best way to get hold of us is through the website, which is www.berryandlamberts.co.uk. There's information on the website and there's also our contact details and details of the people who will be able to look after you if you do contact us there. Thank you, Paul. I've been talking with Paul Reader, who is not only the Managing Director of Berry & Lamberts, but also a practicing solicitor on specialising in will and inheritance disputes. This is a podcast on behalf of Berry & Lamberts. 
Thank you for listening to Barry and Lambert Solicitors podcast series, Planning for Your Future. Find out more about us, our services, and what our clients say at barryandlambert.co.uk. Barry and Lambert Solicitors is regulated by the Solicitors Regulation Authority and a proud member of Lawnet, the UK and Ireland's leading network of independent law firms promoting excellence and best practice. Please note that the information provided in this podcast series does not constitute legal advice and serves as a general guide only. The law may have changed since this podcast was recorded. Listeners should seek tailored legal advice from a solicitor who will take your individual and personal circumstances into consideration.